0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Pedram Shojai. Pedram is a former Taoist monk who is an accomplished physician of Chinese medicine and has lectured on wellness around the world. Pedram studied biology at UCLA until he had a series of profound mystical experiences that drew him to the Eastern esoteric arts. Pedram writes, Waking up to our full potential is the key. And I'm passionate about teaching the skills that I've learned over the years, helping people wake up and live their lives fully. Pedram is the author of the book, The Urban Monk, Eastern Wisdom and Modern Hacks to Stop Time and Find Success, Happiness and Peace. With Sounds True, he's created a new audio training series called The Urban Monk Inner Stillness Training Program, How to open up and awaken to the infinite river of life. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Pedram and I spoke about the three documentary films he's created, and how the process of making these films brought him to the realization that conscious capitalism has a critical role in changing the world at this time. We also talked about the events that led Pedram to becoming a Taoist monk, and then why he chose to be an urban monk instead in a world that called for his passionate involvement in social change. We talked about his new inner stillness training program, what it's like to follow a sequence of practices that leads to the opening of what's known in Taoist alchemy as the golden flower. And Pedram led us through a series of breathing exercises where we brought our breath down into our lower belly as a way to discover what it might mean to stop time. Here's my conversation with Pedram Shojai. Pedram, you do a lot of different things. You're a filmmaker, an author, you host your own podcast, you run a media website, and you have a new upcoming book called The Art Of stopping time, so how do you have the time? Pun intended, to do it all.
1: (laughs) Well, because I learned how to stop it, right? Uh, If if you don't know how to manage your energy um, and manage your 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 burn rate in in any given day, uh, and uh, time becomes your master, and you end up kind of tumbling down the white water of time, uh, you're in trouble, right? And so, you know, I was a Taoist monk for four years, and studied with some of the best of the best, and I spent a, a lot of time breathing down to my navel and learning how to find that timeless space. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, um, time can be moving fast, but you're in control of your perception of it. you can in control of this thing called your consciousness um, uh, anchoring into an eternal time. And once you can do that, then you know what the bullets are flying and you're just, you know, calmly walking through the day. And so, you know, I can't say I'm excellent at it all day, every day, but you know, it's a, it's a practice and uh like anything, um, you know, that's a practice. You just keep practicing and, um, it's, it allows me to be able to do what, you know, from out, from the outside looks like a lot, um, uh in a given period of time but you know i gotta say you ask people around here i'm pretty relaxed
0: okay the art of stopping time and you mentioned you have to be able to do this and then you talked about breathing down into your navel as if that was one of the techniques that you might use to stop time can you tell me about that what does breathing down into your navel have to do with stopping time
1: well, so physiologically, what it does is it triggers the parasympathetic nervous system, which gets you out of fight or flight immediately, puts you in rest and digest. So it allows you to go to that relaxed space where your body is uh, healing itself, your body is nourishing the internal organs, and the blood flow is returning back to the prefrontal cortex, you know, kind of the executive function centers in the brain, and it's pulling you out of stress and pulling you into higher moral reasoning and a calmer serotonergic space. Uh, what it's also doing on an energetic level is it's helping you calm the flow of the chaotic energy in your body, allowing you to settle into the, the deepest part of where your life really, you know, began where you were connected to your mother with the umbilicus and, and returning your consciousness and rooting it down to a place where you then feel this profound sense of calm, stability, um, and, stillness, really, that then can become the the base, the foundation from which you operate versus the chaotic uh, entropy that that is the the world around us.
0: Can you lead us in doing that right now? Can we have a taste of that right here and now?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, straighten your spine, whether you're standing or sitting. If you're driving, keep your eyes open. If not, close your eyes. Um, Tip of the tongue touching the roof of your mouth. Breathing in those down to a point about three fingers below your navel as if there's an imaginary balloon down there. Inflate that balloon on the inhale. All the way. Fill it up, fill it up, fill it up. Slow down your breath so you really spend some time filling that up and then gently deflate that balloon on the exhale and allow the air to travel up the center of your body Back of your nostrils, out your nose. And then we'll slowly take another breath. In through the nose, down the center of the body, inflating the imaginary balloon, deep within the center of your hara, your dantian, we call it in the Chinese systems. When it's completely full, we just relax there, just pause there for a second before we let go, release, deflate, and empty that space. Let's take one more deep breath there. Was a total of three breaths, uh, but just for just for demonstration purposes. The be- the better question is, how do you feel, right? If that if if all if if you already feel better and that just took three breaths, imagine what six or ten breaths would do. And it's just such a minuscule amount of time. It's such a small amount of time that is just reallocated towards something that nourishes and nurtures you. And so I like to do at least five of those breaths every 25 minutes. I just have a little timer goes off, reminds me to just breathe. Um, And what it does is it starts to change the cadence and set the tone for the day in a very profound way. You don't really get it at first until you've been doing it for a while. And people just start commenting, hey, you look so good. You look so relaxed. You know, It's always nice being around you. All this kind of stuff that starts coming up because when people see that stillness, it's beautiful. And when people recognize it, it reminds them to go there themselves. And so the person who's calm is the anchor in the room. If you're in an organization, you bring peace and stability and, and, and you know, frankly, better results to what's happening in your organization just by being that, that person that's anchoring. Um, yeah, I mean, sure, you could spend half an hour on your cushion meditating every day, and I, and I highly recommend it. But you know what? I have two young kids. I'm launching a movie in a month. I have another book next month. I get my 30 minutes on my cushion at night. But during the day, I mean, time is flying, right? And so I don't want to blink and say, I can't believe it's lunch and blink. I can't believe it's evening and blink. I can't believe my kids are 18. So these are the types of things that we do to really space our days and remember to catch our breath. That we don't complain. That I can't believe it's only Tuesday, right? I can't. I can't wait till this weekend. And I'm gonna fall on my face and crash. You know that to me is, is, is a, a sure sign of someone who's got uh, an inappropriate burn rate, and they're running their time and their energy in a way that's not sustainable.
0: Well, I just want to say what a very simple and powerful practice. Thank you for leading us off with that. And in about twenty-three minutes, we're gonna do it again.
1: I mean, it's that easy. Right. It's that's the thing. It's, you know, my, one of my big challenges is looking at all these kind of solutions in the self-help world. And, you know, it, it, it feels like people are trying to come up with all these layered and complicated solution sets to our complicated lives and our complicated problems. But, you know, I want to challenge that premise and say, what if the solution to complexity was actually simplicity? And something so simple as stopping to breathe for 30 seconds and building a habit around that or an anchor that was actually going to be much more uh, appropriate, relevant, useful to you in your life versus, you know, what you know the myriad things that people are out there trying to do and just, you know, replace a quaalude.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned, Pedram, that you were a Taoist monk for four years. And I'm curious, first of all, how you became a Taoist monk. And then you stopped being a Taoist monk and became the urban monk. So I'd love to know a little bit about both yeah. of those things.
1: Yeah. So I, uh, when I was at UCLA, I had a kind of a crisis of conscience where I, you know, was pre-med and I got to a point where I was like, wow, I don't really want to be in Western medicine. This is, this is a sick care model. And, you know, I've worked so hard to get to this point, you know, straight A student valedictorian and all that stuff. And I just, looked down the barrel, of the life of, you know, my, my attending physician and was like, I don't want, I don't want this. And so, uh, I had actually asked God for, for clarity, um, in, in those days. And, um, this kind of stuff doesn't normally happen, but I was in a UCLA research library and a book fell out of a bookshelf. And so, you know, I'm like, come on. So I walk up, I look through the bookshelf to see which one of my friends is messing with me as if they could hear my thoughts. Realized I was all alone. Um, picked up the book, and it was called The Wandering Taoist by Deng Ming Dao. And, you know, just it was literally like open, open to a, a passage. and you know, It was this passage of this uh, master leading his students across a raging river by connecting their lower energy centers and all this. And I was like, what? Come on. Took it home that night, read the whole thing. Next day, I went looking for a Taoist uh, kung fu teacher. Uh, found one in North Hollywood. It turns out he was the senior student of like the grand master who got out. I mean, all these guys got killed in the Cultural Revolution. So one guy got to San Francisco, made it down to L.A. The other person of that caliber got to uh, New York. And here I am, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, walking to this kung fu studio. The, the the master walks straight through the rows with a friend of mine who I'd convinced to come with me, walks straight through the course, drops everything, walks into the waiting room, looks me in the eyes and says, you're here, I've been expecting you. <laughs> so, you know, I was, was kind of hooked, I was kind of hooked That hello. I was like, what What are you talking about? And, um, you know, I was in, I was doing Kung Fu, Tai Chi, Qigong, um, you know, 20, 30 hours a week, was totally into the training. And it uh, turns out he was an abbot of the lineage as trained by the old man. You know, the temple was burned down in China years ago. Um, but, you know, we were lucky enough to have the great grandmaster survive. And so, I then took vows with a a number of the senior students to become monks under that lineage, studied with the great grandmaster, studied with our Kung Fu master. And then every quarter, because I was in school, I said, you know, this is, I'm not leaving college for this. Uh, Every quarter I took, I, I basically studied real hard and then I took a semester or a quarter off every year and uh, went on sabbaticals. You know, One time I was in Hawaii fasting and meditating and just doing my energy practice in Waimea Canyon for, for a month. Other times I got to travel through the Himalayas and, and sit with the, the Dalai Lama and the Karmapa Lama, and I had you know, letters of intro to different monasteries. So I was already kind of like a, an urban monk, if you will, but I had um, a choice to take a, a vow of either celibacy uh, or to be a householder, and I thought I was going to be celibate, and just, you know, this is it. I'm in. You know, like, I, I love this thing. I'm, I'm, I'm in. I really enjoy what I'm uh, learning here. I think this is my life. And um, something just started haunting me. And I, you know, started talking to a couple of the teachers I was with in India. And they're like, man, you don't belong here. You speak good English. Look, look all around you. and You know, I was in an ashram where, I mean, it was literally like the, the beach upon which the Western world was splashing on the Himalayas. It was just a bunch of people running from the West. And hiding in the mountains looking for spirituality and it was you know there's some wonderful people obviously i don't want to be too flippant but there was a lot of lost souls you know just trying to hide out or or worse yet being arrogant about their newfound spirituality how much better than they are than the rest of the world and you know it just it didn't feel right and said look you you are destined to be a householder you need to understand the lives of normal people you need to be a normal person don't don't try to be some sort of exalted state like these people like go live amongst the people and be helpful. Right. And I didn't want to hear that at the time, but I knew he was right. But I came home, you know, I was, I had, you know, studied during my, my studies, uh, part of, I failed to mention was I had, uh, uh, taken on a course in becoming a doctor of Oriental medicine. So I had done that while I was in my Taoist studies monastic program. Um, and so when I came back, I, you know, became a doctor and started, you know, healing, uh, ailing people. And, um, you know, quickly grew it to a three office medical group and had a quarter million dollars a month in overhead. And you know what? It's really easy to be enlightened in the Himalayas. Try doing it in L.A. rush hour traffic when you're late for a meeting and your conference call is, is you know, messing up because your cell phone's not working right. That's when you know your meditation works or not. And so, you know, I, I spent the last 20 years of my life pressure testing what I learned in the monasteries in, in, in a real life with wife, kids, and, you know, Big successful businesses that I operate consciously
0: do you ever have a feeling that you're not in touch with the spiritual practices in the same way like it's a great idea I can do this while I'm in traffic in Los Angeles and my phone doesn't work but do you ever think wow I've really lost touch in a way
1: look I mean that's always the struggle right is you know uh, you can dip your beak I mean look we took three breaths and it felt pretty good right but you look. I'm mean, I'm pretty sure. You know, being who you are, you've run the miles, and you know what it's like to you know sit on a cushion long enough to feel the bliss of of you know letting go and being in that timeless space. And so, you know, for me, I get in as much time as I can, um, and I have periods of my t- of my life. You know, basically, you know, we're going to spend a couple months in Italy next year from Thanksgiving on. I'm you know slowing it slowing it way down, and so you know, you make hay when the sun is shining and, um, yeah, I mean, you're not always in that place, but I have to say, I've operationalized my Dharma to the point where I love what I do. And I'm so engaged in what I mean. My next movie is on the conscious capital movement and how we can, you know, use our money to, to, to create the world that that will be sustainable uh, for our children's future. And so, you know, um, is it the same as, you know, listening to the fluctuations of the bird sound around the lake that you're sitting at for the last three days? No, but not everyone has that luxury. And so, I, you know, what I like to do is take students into up the mountain, show them what that experience is like, and then show them how to live a, a healthy life as a householder down here, remembering that and always, you know, remembering to access that in their day to day. Um, but not starving for it to the point where they detest their day-to-day because they just haven't been able to you know, basically capture any of that, right? So it's, 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 a, it's a tough balancing act, right? Like the world we live in is loud and busy, and um, the, the life of an ascetic is, is, is beautiful. Um, you know, but in my opinion, I've, I've come to the opinion that it's also somewhat decadent because I really wasn't doing much for the world that was sliding while I was up in the monastery. It's great for me, right? But I also, you know, there's there's a lot of things down here that, that require attention, and it's not me, then whom? right?
0: Okay, I want to ask you kind of a weird question. When I asked you about how you became a Taoist monk, you traced it back to when a book fell off a bookshelf and hit you. Okay. That's, that's, happened twi- that's happened twice in my life, by the way. Do you have some type of, for lack of a better word, metaphysical explanation for what's happening when a book falls out of a shelf and hits you, if it's happened twice to you? How do you explain that?
1: I mean, you know, you could call it angels. You could call it quantum entanglement. Um, all I know is that it happened. And, you know, I was a biology major at UCLA at the time. Um, you know, I, I was not, you know, looking for some, you know, metaphysical explanation I just couldn't explain it but a good scientist when observing something that doesn't fit their 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 hypothesis about reality doesn't dismiss the data they have to they have to then challenge their view on reality so this happened so now I'm like what the hell was that? Right. And so, you know, sure. I mean, look, I've been a Taoist abbot. So, so, and I never stopped being I basically took ordination. I became a priest of the lineage in 2001 and then I became an abbot, um, uh, so so I got I've had basically since 2001 and then when when I wrote Rise and Shine in 2011, um, uh, I was elevated from minister to priest and then I became an abbot last year. So I mean I'm very active in the lineage, and yeah I mean look we train to see energy and I could you know I've done exorcisms and you know I've done all sorts of stuff that you know normal people don't even talk about. Um, and so yeah, I could see. In it. I mean, I could definitely explain it metaphysically. Now is you know I'm asking God for, for a clue, and my angels or God or whatever you want to call it, um, just bend reality to put it in front of me, right? And um, it's happened you know in, in that in that particular instance that way, but it happens every day of my life, and it happens to most people. They just don't know how to pick up the clues.
0: Now you said this happened to you a second time. What was the other book that fell on your head?
1: Uh, so as I was in Nepal um, and doing my, you know, I was on a sabbatical and, you know, everyone, everyone I'm with, are like meeting all these amazing gurus. And I keep meeting these people that I'm like, yeah, they're okay. I mean, look, the Dalai Lama is beautiful. And I spent, you know, I think about 10 days with them. Uh, sat with the Karmapa Lama and a number of different ones, but I'm, you know, I'm not meeting anyone where I'm like, oh my God, this is like my master. I'm here now. Like I've, I'm home. Right. And so I was doing this kind of, uh, self-indulgent uh, rant where I'm like, you know, how come everyone's finding a guru and I don't have a guru? I want a guru, you know, like doing that whole stupid thing. And like as I was doing that, I'm like, God, you know what? So I turned, I turned it over again. I'm like, listen, uh, send me a clue. I'm looking. I-, I think I want a guru to train me up here, but I don't really know what I'm looking for. Like, send me a clue. And I was in the, um, oh God, what's the name of the uh, famous bookstore in Kathmandu? Um, old books. You find like ancient manuscripts, all sorts of crazy stuff shows up in this bookstore in Kathmandu. Um, and again, a book falls out of a bookshelf. And again, like this is like, there's no stacks. Like it's just, you know, backed against like wood. I'm like, come on. I walk over, I pick it up and it's, uh, this time it wasn't open. It was just kind like of like, I just see the cover and it's called Adam in the Kabbalistic tree by a, a rabbi named Zev Ben Shimon Halevi. I'm like Kabbalah. I'm sitting here in, like, Buddha land up in, you know, high Himalayan Nepal, and you give me Kabbalah? And, you know, I'd known enough at that point to know not to question it. I read the book that night. and was like, wow, that was profound. Like, that layered so many things for me in my understanding of Taoist alchemy and my understanding of spirit and soul and all of it. And it was, again, it was just like, stop looking outside yourself, you moron. There is no more you need to learn. Look inward and wake up to the eternal truths that I've already taught you how to unlock through it. Karma Lama and all these books I've thrown at you, right? Stop looking outside yourself.
0: Now, Pedram, you mentioned that you're working on a new documentary film on the conscious capitalism movement. And I actually want to talk to you about all three of the films, the two previous films you've made, and also this new film as well. But let's start with the new film. Tell me a little bit about why this topic is so important to you and what the core message of the film is.
1: Yep. So uh, to, to do that, I'll actually back engineer a little bit because the way we ended my second film is really kind of leaning into the audience, being like, listen, at the end of the day, you vote with your dollars. And so, you know what? Like the reason why organics are scaling the way they are is because people early on started buying organics and they drove the prices down. They created this whole industry. And so... I really looked at that and said, look, if I want to test this premise and really see how I could ask the big questions and say, look, how within our lifetimes, within one generation, can we change some of these things that, that are not working? How can we uh, find enterprise to, to fix some world problems like, you know, billion, trillion dollar world problems that, like to end hunger, to, to fix climate change and all that? what would we be able to what what would we have to do to do that? And so all roads led to money, the economy, business as usual, all these things. And so then I said, All right, well I'm on a journey. And so I met with, you know, John Mackey of Whole Foods, I met with Guayaquil, I met with seventh generation I went to all the founders of the big kind of uh, foundational conscious capital companies and and equities, like Rodale, who started the organic movement, and really started questioning, you know, why they did what they did, how they did it, whether or not this was a scalable thing, whether or not we can use this as a solution, um, you know, for for the problems we have in front of us. And it really, uh, man, I found religion on this thing. It was really uh, eye-opening. It's been a couple years where I've been in this soup and sitting with the best. I mean, first of all, I get, uh, it's unbelievable the caliber of people I get to like call friends and text with now. Uh, These people are heroes and they're doing things that are changing the world at at such scale. And there's things that like we reveal in the movie that are happening. They're just just utterly amazing and impactful. And it really, you know, it, it really questions the, the the trance that people are in, that they believe that, you know, the government or someone outside of themselves has to change something and the world's like, why don't they fix this? It really brings the responsibility squarely back on us. Every little decision we we make, where our money sleeps at night, where we're banking, how we're investing, where our 401k goes and what brand of coffee we're buying. And all that matters and it matters so much, but because we feel like just our little contribution doesn't make a difference, is why the world we're looking at exists the way it does. And so we really go after it and we really arm our viewers afterwards with uh, tools and solutions and we gamify it and really come up with uh, ways to help people find a way towards more prosperity. Because I really think that, you know, this money is evil thing has really kept good people from really joining the economy and really being like, yeah, you still got rent, and you still got mortgage and all this, but it's like, you know, only greedy people want to go after money. And what they're doing is they're taking the money, they're buying lobbyists, and they're destroying the, the ecosystem. And so, you know, if we, we want to take this back, we have to also take the narrative of money back. And it's not the scarcity of slicing pie and fighting over resources. It's about creating abundance for everybody ending world hunger, fixing the water problem, converting sun to energy, and all these things that are well within our grasp. And so it's really a, a, a movement more than a movie, and it's really at the tip of the spear into me kind of lining up and, and, and joining forces with some of the most amazing people I've met to be like, look, this is happening, and this is how you get involved. Stop looking at the bad news networks. Be a part of the good news that's happening right in front of you.
0: Tell me more about how voting with our dollars really makes that big of a difference in the big picture. Someone who might say, you know, well, you know, I'm invested in socially responsible investing funds and I support the companies that I believe in. And, you know, I, I still feel there's this sense of helplessness about the direction of current events.
1: Sure. I mean, look. If you're already investing in socially responsible funds, uh, fund, that's wonderful, you know. But and, and let's just use uh, a, a, a you know a simple example, but an easy one, right? Is if you are having a a Coke, a Coca Cola, with your lunch. What you're doing is you're supplying everything that Coca Cola stands for, lobbies for. Um, you know, puts into landfills and all of that, and creates abundance, allows them to hire more people, allows them to create more jobs, yes, but also uh, create whatever wake they create behind them versus, say, like a bottle of Guayaquil, which literally will help you regrow the rainforest with every purchase, every dollar that these guys make, uh, very specifically within their business model, allows for less rainforest to be cut down and growing back rainforest and so it's really the wolf that you're feeding right and so that happens with every dollar it happens with your you know with your 401k and it also happens with um, your bank right like you could say I'm in socially responsible this and this that and the other but you know I, my money's at Wells Fargo right? Well Wells Fargo is investing in all kinds of crazy stuff that's nasty. I mean they they they're an obvious black eye example because they've done all sorts of nasty things lately. But you know, they're funding things that that might necessarily, you know, be leading to wars on the planet and they and they're doing things that that you your value set would not otherwise agree with, but you just haven't kind of looked looked through to see it. But what happens is because you're leaving your money there, the money is what talks and the money is what's funding the companies that are allowing you know themselves to do the things that they're getting away with and so once you start reallocating money you've changed the game and so you know i learned this you know just in my ascent up through this you know kind of food chain of information and all this is like wow this is actually way easier than i thought like we're we're winning this game it's just not being told on media yet There's so much money being moved in this direction. It's incredibly, incredibly optimistic, optimistic time for this. Now it's just a question of like a race against time, you know, um, as hurricanes are are starting to get bigger and and, and global problems are starting to, to scale worse is, you know, it's waking us up to say, okay, you know what? There is no place I'm allowed to be unconscious. Everything I do matters. And how I do one thing is how I do everything. So how can I align my values with my spirituality, with with the way I act as a householder on this planet?
0: Pedram, it's approximately 25 minutes since we first did our breathing into our lower belly. I wonder if we could take, you know, a little stopping time break. What do you say?
1: We'll do, a, so we'll do a slightly different version of it this time, just so I can uh, give you a little salad bar here. So, same thing spine straight, head up straight, tip of the tongue touching the roof of the mouth, breathing in nose and out nose. This time, we're going to ble- breathe right down to the same area, like the, the imaginary balloon, all the same mechanics. But this time, let's, let's add a layer of counting. So, as we inhale, let's count for the count of four. So, one, two, three, four. And now hold your breath there for the count of two. One, two. And now begin to exhale for the count of four. Two, three, four. And hold at the bottom of the breath for the count of two. Two, again. Inhale for four. Hold for two. Exhale for four. And hold for two. Now let's slow our breath, slow our count a little bit more. Inhale for a slow count of four. Hold for two. Exhale for four and hold for two. Do one more round on your own and we'll all come back. And slowly come back to waking consciousness again that was what four rounds of breathing Not much.
0: Do you really do this every 25 minutes?
1: Oh, well, you know what for me um, I have to be honest is I've been doing it for so long it's just part it's not like a, a an app that I click on to do. I'm just kind of constantly breathing like this now. And that's the goal. You, you do it every 25 minutes, you get to the point where like, you're just doing it kind of all the time. And then you're not wondering why you're so tired by by 2pm. Right. And so you just you build a micro habit and you keep building on that micro habit until you just realize that you're better this way.
0: And, and what's the significance in Taoist teachings of the tip of the tongue being up on the roof of the palate like that?
1: Yeah, great question. A um, couple things. Uh, in the Taoist system, uh, it's very important to connect the Ren Mai and the Dumai, the governing vessel and the conne- uh, conception vessel. One runs from the perineum up to the base of the tongue, the other runs from the perineum up the spine, over the head, down to the roof of the mouth. Connecting those two circuits or meridians of energy is a, a critical point in this uh, Taoist kind of energy yoga. And the tip of the tongue does that, and it connects that flow, and it lets it kind of settle and go. Uh, when I when I speak of the space, um, specifically, I'm saying go to about a third of the distance back along the palate, right where the hard palate ends. You drop into this kind of deep crevasse, and it's like a softer spot. And that's really where the connection point is between those two. Now, you know, we've also learned that, you know, in doing this, it helps trigger parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, It helps uh, elongate and deepen the breathing and trigger diaphragmatic breathing. Um, And all of these things are part of the same kind of ecosystem of, of uh, you know, exercises and and uh, kind of best practices to get your energy running and flowing in the best way. It just calms you down better, and it connects up your circuits in a way that, that really works.
0: Now, we were talking, Pedram, about the new documentary you're working on, on the conscious capitalism movement. And when we started talking about it, you said that it really picked up at the end of the second documentary that you made. And it sounds like there's some progression here from the three documentary films that you've made. And I wonder if you could take us through that, because I think it'll give... Me and our listeners a chance to understand the sort of logical progression of your interests that brought you to this conclusion that voting with our dollars is so powerful.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I when I came back uh, from the Himalayas and you know decided I was going to get into healthcare and try to heal one person at a time. Um, you know, I got kind of swept into a mess because I you know was trying to fix the system from within. And, uh, you know, I, I I basically realized, you know, as a doctor of oriental medicine, You know, the industry, this is, again, like around 2001, 2002, industry wasn't that robust. And we were, you know, like all these people that I was tutoring at UCLA are now better than me somehow because they went to a traditional medical school and I went to a hippie school. I'm like, yo, I think you're missing this. Like, I chose this because this is more interesting to me. Don't be disrespectful. And so, you know, being in my 20s and, and, you know, um, taking it personally, I I said, okay, screw this. I'm going to start a medical group and hired a medical director and basically became, you know, kind of a, we featured on journals and stuff for being you know, kind of a very avant-garde integrative medicine clinic, well before functional medicine, all this stuff even showed up, um, you know, on the, on the main stage, if you will. Um, and, uh, you know, then started scaling it and grew it to three offices and um, just ended up in long conversations where, you know, uh, the cost of running and administering medical um, is obnoxious. You're taking insurance, so the third party payer is, is, is kind of telling you what to do. Uh, and you know, patients started becoming called cases. And you know, a case value of someone who just comes in for something and leaves isn't enough. Like we're starting about you know talk about buying an MRI machine, having a one bed OR, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, yo, what what have I gotten myself into? And I like I have like big butticas as my spokesperson. We're spending you know sixty grand a, a month on on newspaper ads, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, so business-wise, it's looking great, but I'm starting to get miserable. And I'm like, God, this is all just backwards. And I'm trying to figure out why I'm not, not enjoying Like, I'm doing well, right? But I'm not enjoying this anymore. And I just had this moment at a, at a table. Like, I got invited to be at this, like, hospital CEO thing. And I'm the CEO of this group. And so, you know, here I am in my 20s sitting at, like, you know, this table with all these kind of big wigs. And, um, you know, kind of arrived, if you will, at that table. And um, the hosting CEO... Um, was at my table. I was like, how's it going? da da da, da. Everyone's kind of shooting. You know, by, by the way, like, everyone's, like, at least 30 pounds, you know, over, over the weight they should be, you know, being in health. Um, and so we're sitting there talking about it, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, you know depersonalize names and stuff. We'll call him Rick. Uh, you know, how's it going, Rick? And he's like, yeah, terrible, terrible. Like, What's up? He's like, you know, we need some rain up in here or something. My emergency room is empty. And, uh, man, we, we really need some people to fall off some roofs or something. Oh, my. And then, you know, business is slow. Yeah. And I just, you know, there's this banner behind him, you know, on the back wall. It's just like, you know, ninth Annual Wellness Expo or something. And I'm sitting here listening to this guy's lips are moving and I'm just doing this kind of shift and focus, looking at the banner, looking at him going, what the hell kind of business am I in? Where we are not wishing well for the people that are our customers that are coming and asking for help, like what is wrong? The incentives are so misaligned, and I and I realized I was in the sick care system, and you know that's when I started doing corporate wellness, starting to really go, okay, I can't do this. This is this model is broken. It's a it's a tumorous model, and it's not designed to help people it's, it's designed to extract value out of sickness and so um i had done some dvds with some friends who uh, in qigong uh right around that time and they'd asked me you know hey you know um we, we, you know you got a good voice for this stuff you know you wanted to work on a, a, a project what would it be so we started kind of mapping out uh a project i was calling it vitality we started doing some interviews and they kind of wanted to skew more like conspiracy stuff like you know technology. The government doesn't want you to know about the cures AIDS. I'm like, look, you know, that's not the healthcare crisis. I mean, I'm just trying to get people to eat more vegetables and like wake up, you know? And so we, we agreed to disagree. And so I, uh, didn't want to, you know, lose the momentum. So I bought the rights to the movie off of them. And I'm like, what the hell am I going to do with this? Like, I don't know. I'm not a filmmaker. And so then I just had to get really creative and, finished the movie. It took another two years to finish it because I didn't know what I was doing. Um, And then when I started talking to distributors, um, they were, you know, it was all because I'm an outsider. I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. That sounds really parasitic. Like, why would I just give you the rights and and hope that you do something with it? And so I, I, you know, through some friends in the health industry, I was looking at this kind of online marketing thing. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do a free screening of my movie and give it away for free. And I'm going to create a lifestyle program on the back end. That's going to help millions of people. And that's where I'll charge the money. And I'll be able to share this information freely with the world and the people who, you know, appreciate it and need the help will be there. Um, and so, you know, within two weeks, I had like 125,000 emails on an email list and mid six figures worth of revenue and helped a bunch of people. And then I went back to some of the people in the industry. I'm like, Hey, I did this. What do you think? And they're like, what? dude? That's amazing. And so that was because I went and bought well.org and, you know, Vitality then went on to be on Netflix for years and did a bunch of things and was, you know, used by, you know, countries, by the Dep- Department of like Health and, and Education as educational uh, resource for kids learning how to get healthy. Um, and it was really about vitalism and life being, you know, Vitality being this thing that you actually cultivate. And it's really how you live. It's your diet, your exercise, your sleep, your mindset. It was really like a, was a sub one hour movie that really got in and got out and really kind of reframed what health is. So that was the first one. And then I followed that kind of uh, the breadcrumbs, if you will. In um, the second one, and said, look, you know, why is everyone so damn sick? And so we went to Africa and did, like, a wilderness survival course right, you know, at the place, like, just not too far from the first cave that our ancestors stumbled out of after the, you know, the the last big ice age and looked at, you know, what was food like, what was life like, what was stress like, what is this stress system really designed to do as we were, like, tracking lions and all this. And then I went and basically followed the global experts and really started asking the, the big questions about, like, what are all these chemicals that we're adding to our food, to our environment, and around our bodies that are creating a health crisis that wasn't here 100 years ago? Like, what, what was there that was working and what is here now? And let's just go back to, to our origins. The movie is called Origins and see what true health is. So it was really about, you know, microbiota. It was really about, you know, eliminating any, you know, chemicals from, from your system. And, and the movie, uh, it did really well. It shared like 260,000 times in the first few weeks. And, I, you know, so I signed the, the first two movies with distributors, and they kind of went off and did what they did. Um, and I learned my lesson is, you know, the distributors don't get my movies ever again, because I would much rather keep them free and serve humanity with them and the money comes back and the abundance comes back and I get to help more people. And so, you know, that's what led to prosperity, too, It's just, you know, and the, the, the Conscious Capital movie is called Prosperity. And it's about redefining our definition of prosperity. Like my definition of prosperity includes time with my wife and my kids and hiking with the dogs and things that don't involve money, but are really important to me and are part of, you know, a, a prosperous life as I would define it.
0: Very good. That's very clear. Thank you. Now, with Sounds True, Pedram, you've created an audio series, an audio training series, called the Urban Monk Inner Stillness Program. And one of the things I'd be curious about is this idea that the program itself helps us discover the golden flower in Taoism. What is the golden flower?
1: Mm i would qualify that by saying, okay, so after I wrote the, the book, the urban monk, um, you know, my first, I, I you know, I was really kind of the, I was, my first book was more monk than urban. Then the urban monk came out and became a New York times bestseller in the first week. And like, I was like, Oh wow. you don't know, care about this stuff. And, um, then I ended up doing a lot of media, like, you know, interviews and I was like, okay, well that's fine. But tell me like the seven ways I can get better abs in like six minutes. And I'm just like, stop asking me stupid questions. Right stop asking me stupid questions. That's not going to advance humanity. And that's not, you know, this isn't going to help your readers. And so, you know, part of my whole thing with sounds true was like, hey, um, here's the deal. Like, I'm tired of the tabloid dumbness. I'm tired of, you know, the superficial uh, insanity that's out there. So if I want to do an audio program, this is what I would do. And I want to like go do a deep dive into the real work. And I want to tell it like it is. And I want to teach it the way I was taught it in a way that's reverent and respectful, but also mindful of the fact that people have less time to do, you know, like, and don't have time to do what I did for all those years, traveling and, you know, being in monasteries and stuff. And so that's, and, and you know, to, to Sounds True's credit, they're like, no, no, that's exactly what we want. I'm like, deal, we're in. Okay. So the golden flower unfolds in the third eye. And. As one learns to retrovert or turn one's awareness, one's gaze inward, and really look at the screen of the mind's eye and silence the reactions to the noise to the point where one could even observe such things, there appears this emanation. And at first, it's just this faint little thing. You can't see it. But as you get better and better at it, this, this light, this golden light starts to really unfold. And it really starts to take on an energy of its own, almost like a sun that's igniting. And as it starts to kind of take that on, it starts to emit more and more light. And it starts to inform your decisions. It starts to transform your health. It starts to give you intuitive hits. And it starts to become a guiding light. In this thing called life, where everyone is walking around like like a zombie, the Buddhists call them hungry ghosts, right? And most people around us are hungry ghosts, just stumbling around. And so that's really the essence of the work of the Taoist Pai, the work that I, you know, the, the the lineage from which I hail. And so Lu Dongbin, the, the you know kind of one of the the eight Taoist famous famous immortals, is kind of the, you know the founder of my lineage. Um, that's that's the work that he teaches. And so my whole thing is like. Let's not just like use meditation as a stress buster. Let's not use Qigong as a Quaalude or a Red Bull replacement. Let's talk about what this stuff really is and let's wake up to our eternal selves and let's stop diminishing these things and diluting them to some sort of thing that helps us with our productive capacity in a world that's like, you know, marching off a cliff. And let's wake up to who we really are, who we truly are, and use that awareness to inspire our decisions and how we behave and we act on this planet, and so the golden flower is truly the gift that that it emanates. It unfolds and it manifests, and it really um, the the petals of it open with the cultivation of one's consciousness and the understanding of one's true eternal identity.
0: Now I realize, Pedram, that there's a whole system that you teach some exercises in this audio training series. But I'm curious, for somebody who says, you know, I have a a feeling about this light at the third eye, but I'm not quite sure I'm connecting to what Pedram's calling the golden flower. Is there a specific practice that they could do specifically related to opening this light at the third eye center?
1: Uh, Yeah, but I mean, look, it took me six CDs to get there. And so, you know, not, not to be flippant about it, but you know what, um, this is, this is the kind of thing that I'm very careful to, to be very articulate about is I spent eight years of training getting to the point where I was allowed to learn this stuff. And it wasn't because like the guy was like, Oh, well, you're not cool enough for this yet it was because I didn't, I was doing the preparatory work to allow for this work to work. And so You know, I think a lot of what happens in Western culture is, you know, people will read about like a Satori or a Nirvana experience and and, and, you know, some like, oh, I was in like timeless space and the stars were all around me and I was like in this Milky Way thing and I was out of my body. And so people will read about some of these really kind of far out, far off experiences that happen to people that have been cultivating for 30 years and be like, okay, how do I do that? Now? How do, like, well, let's, let's go there. Let's go there. And, and what that does is it dismisses all the work that it took to get there. And then because people don't be like, don't feel like they're like in this eternal bliss, like instantly, they're like, you know, that meditation craft, that didn't really work for me. I didn't, I never really felt Nirvana in the six minutes I sat there. Right. And so I was very careful to lay the foundation to allow for the students learning this stuff to do it in the right sequencing and take their time to get there in the right way to actually be able to have this experience instead of hearing about this experience, either pretending they had it and fake it, you know, and, and talk, talk to their spiritual friends about, you know, how, oh yeah, I had that too, or, you know, uh, giving up because they're like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. So, you know, respectfully, I want to say it takes a while to get there and I want to make sure that I am the, anti, uh, the anti-promise in that, right? Because I think we live in a world that's trying to sell sugar cereal to children. We live in a world that's so hung up on shortcuts that we wonder why we're falling off a cliff because no one's doing the work anymore. And so for me, it's about, look, here's the work. Here's the work. If you want to do it, these are the results that you can expect. And, you know, it might take you six months, it might take you six years, but here's the work as taught for the last 6,000 years in a, in a lineage that's tried and true. That's not making this stuff up. It's not coming from some weird self-help, you know, um, you know, I, I remember this some self-help guy I was interviewing and he had this, like, you know, this thing about, you know, manifestation and I was like, wow, that's really fascinating. So you like, you stumbled upon this and you figured it out and you, you know, you applied it in your life and then you start teaching it. and he's like, no. I thought of it in the shower and I just started teaching it as like a quick scheme to people, but it worked. And I was like, you are the devil. You are exactly why the world is where it's at, because none of this is anchored in reality and none of this has actually, you know, uh, effectively been proven. And so what I can guarantee is this stuff has been done by thousands of practitioners for thousands of years. But you got to go through the sequence so that you do it right. and You don't stumble and you don't skip a step. So that then, when you get to a certain place, you're like, I don't do the flower. It's like, okay, well, you you know, you didn't calm your mind here. You didn't do this part here, and so you know, it's it, to me, I, I get really passionate about that because I see so many people cutting corners right now, and um, you get what you pay for, right? You you're you get the world that we have, with you know the promises that people are making.
0: Well, I very much respect your answer and appreciate it, Pedram. I wonder if instead then you could help people understand what the sequence is that you teach, if you were just to talk about some of the stepping stones?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that that's no problem. Now we're talking about the map, not the terrain. And we could talk about the map all day, but the terrain, you got to walk, right? Um, and so, you know, the first stop is learning to calm the mind, right? If you can't calm the mind, none of this makes sense. So learning to calm the mind and really slowing down to be able to observe what's a thought, what's a reaction, what is coming from, you know, an emotion, what is coming from, you know, lunch, if you will, right? And being able to observe and, and slow into that is a really big deal. Uh, and then, you know, some of the stuff that we already started working on foundationally here, right, is is finding the balloon in the lower abdomen, learning how to cultivate the energy down there and bringing the yang chi down to the most yin part of your body and stoking the fire and accelerating the growth of that, that, you know, kind of energetic body, the energy body that is going to be the foundation of this practice as it grows, and then moving up, you know, moving up in the Chinese, we call the dantians, you know, move up from the lower to the middle and the heart, you know, and then all the way up to the third eye. But, you know, in the, in the, in the Indian system, there's, you know, the, the, the chakra systems where there's seven of them. And so we start working how to bring energy up the spine and down. We start working how to bring it up the, the, the front of the body and down, how to bring it up the central channel and then finding where we're blocked and spending some time, you know, moving through where we're blocked and bringing energy there and becoming okay with just whatever it is that that's coming like dislodged and becoming uh, you know, aware, you know, uh, what we're becoming aware of in that space again, and just really clearing some of these things that are stuck in our shadow so that we could bring our light of awareness up and, and bring our mind's eye of these, these kind of cobwebby areas within our body's uh, energy systems within our bodies in general um, and, and, and setting up the preconditions for all this to flow. And then as we do that, we kind of work from the bottom all the way to the top. We work on, uh, you know, really opening the heart and transforming that, learning to, you know, become compassionate with ourselves and and compassionate with others. And, 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 you know, again, all of this is kind of a prelude to then being able to open up these centers to be able to do this work with, the golden flower with the third eye. You know, my challenge is, you know, a lot of people go do this work and then they can't balance their checkbooks and their lives are falling apart because they're all heaven and no earth. And, you know, for for the Taoist system, it's really about a dynamic balance between heaven and earth at all times.
0: When I think of the three centers that you've referred to, this belly, dantian, and then the heart, and then the third eye center, the center of of the head, I'm curious about the heart Center because it's not necessarily a linear process, I don't think. Meaning, someone could have a very open belly and even a very open mind, but maybe the cobwebs, as you called them, could be in the heart. I'm curious what you think about that. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's this is the thing, right? Is there's no one answer for everybody because you know what? Maybe you had a heartbreak and your heart shut down, right? Um, I could tell you, most people have a very hard time doing the belly breathing and anchoring their breath down to the core of their being you know, kegeling up and understanding how to use the base of their spine to activate the energy centers uh, that then move up from there. A lot of people are stuck, you know, in, in kind of the traditional third chakra space with their identity and their ego trying to figure out, you know, who, who am I as a spiritual person? Who am I as a business person? Who am I? And all this like trying to define oneself instead of letting go of all that crap. So there's a lot of that we go through. Um, but then when you get to the heart, I mean, look, the heart is, you know, in Kabbalah, it's Tepharath, right? It's, it's the central hub where a lot of the different sephiro move. It's the central hub where all the energy systems move. You know, in, in Kabbalah, that's also, you know, it's the, it's the Christ center, right? It's, it's where the compassion lies. And so um, without an open heart, it is darn near possible to move into any of the higher spiritual work. And so you know it, it to me, the heart is is one of the most powerful alchemical it's the philosopher's stone, if you will. it you use it to transmute and to bless and to love parts of yourself back into the whole. You use it to melt away and turn that lead into gold and use it to forgive yourself and forgive others that have wronged you and forgive and forgive and be grateful until you get to the point where you feel the flow of energy and you feel the love between you and the life all around you. And that, at that point, you know, the, the, the work is working. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's a real, I don't know if I answered your question appropriately, but it's really one of the most important fundamental parts that everyone wants to go to some like exalted spiritual state. Right. Um, But they lack the self love. I mean, look, we've all had history. We've all had stuff. Right. And so, but without healing some of that, um, you can't go to any exalted spiritual state, right? That there is no exalted spiritual state. You know, Baba G was washing you know people's feet, um, you know, I, I, for forever. He's pretending to be a pauper. Jesus, Jesus was you know uh, you know basically handing handing out you know uh, love to lepers and healing people and in like the, the lowest of low. And so if anyone thinks they're exalted in their spirituality, then they've read it all wrong, man. And so that's where the heart really equalizes and settles the score.
0: Okay, Pedram, I just have two final questions for you. One is that in listening to your decision to move away from a traditional monk's path and become the urban monk, I thought, you know, this is something I've heard a lot from contemporary spiritual teachers in today's world, especially people in their thirties and forties, this decision, this isn't the time for me as much as I love the traditions to follow a traditional path as much as it is, you talked about operationalizing my dharma. I'd never heard that phrase before. I wrote that down. I thought that was, you know, this is the time for people who love spiritual teachings, it seems to me, to bring it into their world and operationalize it. And I, I was curious what your thoughts are about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it has to do with uh, the quality of time. I mean, we are in a boiling cauldron where there is this unbelievable exponential growth, exponential growth of exponential exponential technology that is rapidly changing everything. You know, the, the human population is growing. And so, you know, it's just for me, and again, this doesn't stand for, it, I'm, God bless the guys that are up there doing the work that they're doing, holding it down for the rest of us. But for me, it's just, it's time to not have a distinction anymore between a spiritual life and a material life. I think that the, that wall has crumbled and the modern human does not segment their spirituality away from their material uh, actions on the planet. And I think heaven and earth are coming together very rapidly in the timeline as the quality of time is shifting and all of us feel it. So it's just like, look, you know what? There's a tsunami coming. Like, you know what? It's time to move. Right. And so I feel like people in my generation are like, okay, I get it, but I can't spend eight more years up here in this mountain learning one more ancient Chinese secret. I got to go. Right. It's kind of like, well, why Luke, you know, had to just go face his father, um, and fight Darth Vader when Yoda said his training wasn't done. Right. And it's, it's it's that same like, you know what, the 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 activities that are happening in the world are calling me in and I'll, you know, I'll spend more time sitting on my butt when it's time. But right now I'm needed. I'm needed on the front lines. And I, and I know a lot of people who feel that way.
0: Thank you for that. And then just finally, Pedram, this podcast series is called Insights at the Edge. And one of the things that I'm curious about is what people's current edges. in this case your current edge, and what I mean is sort of what's your growth edge right now? If you were to say this is the place where I'm really challenged, this is the area where I'm really growing right now in my life.
1: Plus, well, easy one for me because I'm, <laughs> I'm in it, man, um, is Thinking small, right? Um I you know, as every single step of the way as I've been in this film and, and, and with these people and I'm looking at like how to make incremental change in the world, I'm realizing that incremental change won't get the results needed in the time they're needed to be had. And so I've been playing small ball my whole life and I'm still playing small ball. So I'm funded like yesterday there's a guy I had lunch with who, you know, we interviewed for our thing, billionaire, who's actually the first person to be mining the moon and literally like has a rocket going up in six months, already has permission to go and like, you know, doing things on that level and just challenging my fundamental assumptions of like, you know, why I think what I'm doing is big enough and why not, you know, why not think bigger and, and why am I feeling like, you know, who am I to think that, right? So it's about, Really parsing out the parts where I would feel like, you know, as a spiritual guy, like, oh, that's ego, and um, understanding that, you know, I'm actually in a partnership with God. I'm in a partnership with divine, uh, divine intelligence and divine inspiration to really step into this dharma and do it, and not need credit for or anything, but just stop thinking small, just think bigger and bigger and and just open your heart more and more and just be of service in a way that is, um, you know, people would think is insane. And the more I do so, the more things just open up and become that much more amazing. And, um, you know, just, it's just a blessing. I'm grateful at every turn, but I have to say, I, I keep running into, you know, little Pedram, Little Pedram questioning, you know, why me, little Pedram not stepping into his greatness at every turn. So, you know, that I mean I live on that edge right now.
0: Well I have to say I've really enjoyed speaking with big open hearted Pedram. It's really been a pleasure. <laughs> it's been great to connect to your passion and intensity and the light of you, Pedram. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you for doing this work. Thank you for holding it down. Uh, you know, you've been doing this for a, a long time. It sounds true. And I'm very, I'm just, I'm, I'm blessed to be a part of that family. And, you know, I'm in very good company. And so I, I uh, you know, I'm hoping, uh, I, you know, to keep helping more people with this.
0: I've been speaking with Pedram Shojai, And with Sounds True, he's created the new audio training series, the Urban Monk Inner Stillness Program How to Open Up and Awaken to the Infinite River of Life soundstreet.com many voices one journey thanks for joining us